Morning, Sunridge. You may be seated all over the building today. Man, I got a lump in my throat. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. Um, wow, it's so good to see you guys. I know we say that often on Sundays, but this Sunday is especially good um, just to be together. If, uh, if you're joining us online, uh, just tell us what you're doing. Some of us are sitting in this building, but tell us where you are, who you're with, whether you're at a watch party, just welcome. Welcome either you're in the building or welcome if you're just joining us online. So good to be with you. You know, there's somewhere in the psalm that says it was good to be in the house of the Lord, and today that, that really means something to me. So, yeah. All right. And I know it's going to be especially difficult for some of you. Uh, often you fall asleep during my messages, but um, it's going to be really difficult because you're going to be hypoxic. So if you need to open it up and breathe a little, it's going to be so good to hear you laugh at my jokes too because I've been telling some really good jokes to empty room, and uh, that's always hard. Um, you know, I've told stories before here that I'm a surfer, uh, that I put that in quotes because, you know, 70% of the time when I go, it's surfing, and the other time it's just kind of like flailing around. It doesn't look beautiful. Um, but there are days where, depending on how big the waves are and how consistently they come in, that it's really difficult to get out to surf. Um, if you've never surfed before, there's like two parts of surfing. There's like paddling out, and then there's surfing, and honestly, paddling out can be much more difficult than actual surfing. And uh, there are times when you go and you just feel like you're getting pounded by wave after wave after wave. And if, if I'm honest, there have actually been days where I've gone all the way to the beach, driven all the way to Solana Beach or Del Mar, and paddled out or tried to paddle out, and I couldn't make it. You know, the wave sets you back, and I have two really big boards. I have big and bigger. I don't have a little board I can push under big waves. I have to suffer. And there have been days where, like, after almost drowning or something, I just kind of turn my board around and paddle in and, and belly in on a wave. It's very shameful. It's like you know that there was someone on the beach watching this occur. You can't even come in on a wave and look really good, you know. And... This moment in our culture feels a lot like that. It feels like there's just been wave after wave pummeling us. If you think all the way back to like the election in 2016, you know, I think the, the uh, acrimony and the uh, division politically hit our country in an unprecedented way so that no matter what we've been talking about over the last few years, we haven't been able to get agreement on either side. And, you know, it just, it seems like it got worse and worse, whether we're talking about impeachment or health care, whatever the thing was, it's like nobody could talk. And we thought that those were the big problems that we had. And then, you know, in January, February, COVID-19 hit, right? And again, an unprecedented time a wave just hits us and people are filled with fear and there's all this data and predictions and modeling and we're just trying to figure it out as we go and you know we we shut down schools and businesses and people stay at home and churches closed and you know we we thought 
okay, that's a really big thing. And then, then the recession hit. I'm really encouraging you guys now, right? Yeah, the recession hit and you know, unemployment, again, reached an, an all-time high in my lifetime. We've never seen anything like this. And, uh, and so people are suffering through that and we're like, oh man, if we can just get through that wave. And then Arbery and Floyd and racism and implicit bias and protesting and looting and police brutality and people screaming at the police and burning things down. And we're like, what is going on? Is this how bad? It's so bad that in one city in Seattle, the city just gave up. That we, we don't know what to do. We've never been here before, and they just gave away six blocks of downtown and said, we, you guys can just run it. Unprecedented. Wave after wave after wave has hit us. And even in the church. I mean, it, it's like it's impossible for us, it seems, to have conversation anymore about things that we disagree on. And so, for me, it feels like a day when I've gone out surfing and I give up. And don't you, haven't you just felt exhausted? I can't watch one more video, people. Like, I've ingested, I'm at, I'm at my level for the left and the right, you know? And don't you feel like you just want to like turn your board around and paddle into the shore to some safe place? So what if though? What if this thing that's happening in this cultural moment for us, it's, it's not just craziness. What if, what if America isn't just going to hell in a handbasket? What if this is all a test? What if you knew in each one of these phases that we've been going through that it's a test? It's a test sent from God. And we're not just like struggling through and trying to pick our side, that in this time we're being invited to grow in ways that we've never grown before. Uh, at the beginning of this month, I started a series that we've been calling Wilderness. And wilderness is when you're not where you were and you're not where you hope to be either, right? Doesn't this feel a lot like wilderness as that is described? You know, the Israelites, as we've learned, they knew a lot about living in the wilderness. They did it for 40 years. And we've noted as we've looked at this period in their history that God sent them there. And he intentionally, he intentionally put them there after they escaped slavery. And we've been looking at that experience and trying to learn from it. New Testament says that the Old Testament stories are examples to us that we can learn from. And so we've been trying to glean some things from that. And you know, like their trial, like their wilderness experience, a, a, a trial at this magnitude, is it covers everybody. Everybody, there's a macro level to this trial that we're all in it together, right? And yet we're all experiencing 
this wilderness in individual ways too. And I'm sure they did too. We know the big stories, but you know, there's individual stories. There was family stories and personal stories that occurred in that context. And so I look at this audience today and I see different ages and different family situations and different employment situations. And and so we're all experiencing this in an individual way, even though we're sharing it at the macro level. But if this is a test given to us by God with intention, then there's something to learn in it. And we've seen that the Israelites were learning to be guided by God's presence and that they were learning to live gratefully day by day. And today I want to talk about what they were learning from the test that God gave them, this testing period. Do you guys know what the Old Testament book Numbers is all about? What would you guess? This is the feedback part. If you said numbers, you'd be right. You know, like editors, book editors spend like lots of time trying to create a title or, you know, for a book so that people will read it. They must not have spent a lot of time on this. You know, this would be attractive to you mathematicians. Like, ooh, numbers, that's going to be a really fascinating book. In Numbers 14.22, says, You have put me to the test, this is God speaking, these ten times and have not obeyed my voice. Now, when you read that, you wonder, like, is that an exaggeration? Is that what your mom used to say, I've told you a thousand times? Or is this an accurate thing? Well, I think there's good evidence that this is actually an accurate thing. Um, If you're following along online, we're going to put up a link to, uh, you know, a site where you can see that during this period in the Israelites' history, there were ten teachings they got. They were called the Ten Commandments. And there were also ten tests that they experienced. For instance, we've looked at some of them in the story when they escaped Egypt and they find themselves trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army and they they fall to pieces. God has brought them here, but now they think the whole thing's gonna fall apart and they start saying it would have been better for us just to have died back in Egypt rather than to die here. So that was a test. And then last week we looked at just two and a half months later, God provides for them daily. And yet, and, and yet he says, on, on the Sabbath day, like on the, the day before your Sabbath, you're, you're to collect twice as much and just chill on the Sabbath day and enjoy one another and refresh and renew your spirits. But, you know, we're told that some of the Israelites went out to collect more manna and quail the next morning, right? So that was another test. Like, will you really rely on me? Can... can can you trust in my provision for you? And then, you know, when the Israelites camp at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses goes up to receive the revelation from God, he takes too long for them to come back and lead their worship service. So they create their own and they, they worship idols. Another test that they faced. See, the entire time they were in the wilderness, God was testing them. He tests us. Say that out loud. He tests us. Thank you. And if you're at home, just put that in, the, in your chat right now. It's like he tests us. The wilderness is both the test and the testing location. 
He tests everybody. He tested the Israelites. He tests churches. He tests pastors. He tests friends. He tests your little league coach or your soccer coach. He tests your wife. He tests your husband. God tests us because the wilderness is where God prepares us for what's next. Excuse me, in Deuteronomy 8.2, Moses writes, Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would really obey his commands. It's in the wilderness that God seems to get our attention in a way that he can't otherwise because maybe our receptivity to what he's teaching us is heightened because we can't escape. We're kind of stuck in that situation. Doesn't it feel like that right now? And he has our attention in a way that he couldn't get us to to pay attention in a time when we're not kind of like constrained by a wilderness type situation. So, Is this all a test? And if so, what's next? So rather than trying to escape or to control or to get it over with, what if we looked at this time in America, in the church, in our families, in our place where we're working or hoping to get back to work, what if we looked at this as something that God is doing in us? so that we'll be ready for the next assignment he has for us. That's both comforting and terrifying, isn't it? Why should we do that? Well, because there is something next. There is a next thing. Say that, there's something next. See, I'm so hungry for feedback, I'm gonna do this to you guys. Like, put that in the chat too if you're just watching us online. There's something next, there is. What's next for the Israelites? The promised land. And next week, we're gonna start a series called Promised Land, and we're calling it that on purpose. We'll talk about that more in the future, but the next thing for them is the promised land. What are God's tests like? And and how does he test us? If you're following along in your notes, this is like the, the main thing I'd want you to get from today is God's tests are not multiple choice or even essay. His tests are an assessment lab. How many of you, like in your position, in your career or your particular industry, there's some type of an assessment center that you go through in order to have that job? Anybody? Like if you're a fireman, you don't just take a written test. You, you have to perform or a police officer or in, in some careers, like as a nurse, you have to demonstrate skills so that you, you, you show that it's credible, that you're ready for this job that they're going to put you in. Or even mechanics have to go through an assessment center. It's not just a book test. And so with God, I think that our testing isn't just, it's not just a, a cerebral exercise. The test isn't just of what we know. 
It's a test of what we do, and oftentimes a test 18 inches from our brain, of our heart. How did Jesus test for love? Think about it. Did, did, did Jesus test for love by saying, you know, like, well, can you quote 1 Corinthians 13, or can you sing with emotion, or, you know, do you say pithy, loving things, or do you post memes about love? He said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So in other words, in Jesus' mind, love is something that isn't just something that we talk about or have the right answers. It's something that exudes from our life in obedience to him, a life of following him. Think of all the just regular everyday examples you have of that. How many of you are married in the room today? Okay. How many of you aren't sure if you're married right now? Some of you didn't move. Um, you know, when you get married, you say a vow, right? You said it, you, and you even fill out an application, an intent to get married, and then everyone signs off on that. But when you're in a spat with your spouse, or, you know, one of you is feeling unloved, do, do you point back to the marriage license and say, of course I love you, it's right here on this document. Remember I said it 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. If you do, does that work? No. It's like, it's what you do, right? We, we feel insecure in our love because people, they're not showing us love. And we're asking for it to be shown to us. You don't just say, okay, we're good. That's right. I forgot that you had said that a long time ago. Or think about a budget. You know, the true test of a budget isn't whether you can put numbers in an Excel spreadsheet or you have a Dave Ramsey graduation certificate on your wall. The real test of a budget is whether you do it, right? Or, you know, trusting God is the same way. We can talk about it. We can say our verses, you know. But do we, do we step out in faith with God? I think that too many of us in the Christian community, we rely on our answer. Does that make sense? We rely on our answer for our bearings of, of, of our Christian faith. I, I say the right things, therefore, I am it. Here's an example from the day of Jesus in Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus begins with an oral pop quiz. He asks him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And I, and I picture, you know, like I, I don't think the, the, the law was in a book, but I can just picture somebody like handing the book and saying, here's an open book test. What do you read? What's, what's the answer? Say the answer. Like in elementary school when you go up in front of the class and you have to say the times tables or you're in competition. Three times four, 12! And you survive and the other person goes and sits down. I was that guy that sat down a lot. <laughs> How do you read it? What's the answer? And in verse 27, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And as a as uh, an expert in the Jewish law, I'm sure that just rolled off of his tongue. 
And ding, 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 in verse 28, Jesus says, you have answered correctly. You got the right answer. Way to go. Do this and you will live. The question is, how do I get eternal life? How do I live in eternity? What's the answer? Gives the answer, do this. I wonder if, if I would answer that question that way. If some, if, you know, and because I'm a preacher, people ask me spiritual questions and I love the question, well, like, you know, how do you know if someone goes to heaven or whatever? It's like, would this be my answer? Would I say, you know, love God, love your neighbor? Of course I'll do that. Now do it and you will live. You see, the gospel is not just a thing that we say. It's not just a creed that we sign off on when we believe it. And I put that in quotes. Having a relationship with God is, is an invitation into a heavenly relationship that has earthly implications with all of our other relationships. Do this and live. And then in verse 29, you see that he wanted to justify himself, which is what we all do. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he's like, how do I narrow that down? You know, that sounds too big. So how can I make it easier for me? And then Jesus tells the story that most of you are familiar with. We call it the Good Samaritan where a man is overtaken by thieves and he's beaten to within an inch of his life so that he can't even care for himself. He's not just robbed, but he's laying there on the side of the road and a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan go by. Two are religious and one is despised by the religion of the people that Jesus is talking to. And, but it's the Samaritan that cares for him. He not only picks him up off the road and gets him to a place of safety, but he provides for you know, his ongoing care until he can get back on his feet. And then Jesus gives another pop quiz. It's a listening comprehension test. And he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So is that the end of the test? He got the right answer? No. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Do you see it? You see, it isn't just what I say. It's what I do. James said, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? And here are the Israelites in this wilderness experience. And again, I'm gonna take you back to Deuteronomy 8, 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character, and here it is, and to find out to find out whether or not you would really obey his commands. You see, for us, we say, I have the right answers. I can spit out the verses and my theological positions, but, you know, James also told us that Satan knows scripture. 
He can quote scripture. The real question is, are, how do we live as Jesus' followers? Every day, but certainly in this season, how do we apprentice under Jesus? I know some of us have test anxiety, right? Um, like anytime we think there's a test, even if we've studied, we just panic so much. I had that in college from not studying. I would have test anxiety, but it's a real condition. And um, yet, as Christians, we should not be anxious about the testing God brings to us. There are good reasons. So why should we welcome wilderness testing? You know, David shows such enthusiasm in the Old Testament, King David, to be tested in Psalm 139, 23, says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. There's an invitation by David. He's inviting God into his life, and he's saying, search me. Doing an objective assessment of me. Look into my heart. Test me. Say that out loud right now as a prayer, as a quiet prayer. Test me. You guys said it really quietly. We don't really want to say that, do we? If you're brave enough, put it in the chat if you're following along with us. Why is that necessary? Why is it necessary for us to apprentice under what God is teaching us in the wilderness and the tests that he brings? Well, number one, and this is in your notes, we're not great at evaluating ourselves. This should not be a newsflash to any of us. If you've ever you know, done a thing that you think you're really awesome at, like mountain biking, and you're taking jumps, and you're having your friends video you. I've never done this, but I've heard about people that have done this. And you think, man, I'm getting such big air. This is gonna be awesome. And then you watch it, and like the jump is like this. There's no air. You know, you're like, I thought I was doing so good. And, you know, I think it's pretty easy for us, even in our faith, to go like, well, of course I'm awesome at this. Of course I'm impressing God. And of course I'm right about this situation or this belief or these politics. But the thing is, is like, we don't grade our own tests because we're not good at evaluating ourselves. Someone else has to write the test and apply the test in order for it to be valid. Remember in elementary school when you graded your own test? Some of you remember. You know what I'm talking about. We don't write our own self-evaluation. There's psychologists have identified a syndrome. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a cognitive bias that causes us to mistakenly assess our ability to be much higher than it really is. See, it's real simple. We overestimate our competence, right? Paul wrote about that when he says, you know, be careful not to think more highly of yourselves, Romans 12, 3. And that's why the wilderness can be so powerful in our lives. Because it strips away all of the things that prop us up to make us think that Everything that we know is like all accurate and everything that we believe is like totally valid and, and you know, credible before God. It strips away our illusions about our own self-importance. 
And that's, that's what happened to the Israelites. You know, they thought they were ready, right? The whole time they're like, God, can we just get to the promised land? But because you've read the story, do you think that they were ready? We read it and we go, they're not ready. See, we, we get in these situations and we, and we want to control them. We want it to go the way that we want it to go. And so, in order to do that, we reject certain information and accept the stuff that really lets us control it better. But God puts us in the wilderness in a way that strips away our ability to control it and to, to predict or like dictate the outcome. Testing that God brings, it's like your credit score. We, you can say all day long that you're reliable for the loan, but your credit score really tells the truth, right? See, when we're tested by God, therefore, we, we should accept the results. Oftentimes, we just want the good result. You know, have you been following the scandal in university uh, entrance exams and this uh, Rick Singer was kind of the mastermind of a way to end around all the university testing and you have people take SAT tests for people. This has been like, you know, there's been some big celebrities in the news about that. You know, like people got into colleges that they didn't really deserve. They, they just wanted the outcome that they wanted. Again, Deuteronomy 8, 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out, to find out whether or not you would really obey his commands. You know, I wonder, like, why is it? And I, and I you know, like, this is not judgment, okay? But... I think it's a question every Christian should ask themselves. I know that I've been asking myself this. Why is it so hard for me to admit that I'm part of the problem today? When to become a Christian, I have to acknowledge that I'm a sinner and that I'm broken. And if you take the words of Jesus about the narrow gate versus the broad gate, I have to crawl through the narrow gate on my belly to get to the other side, begging for God's grace in order to save me. But once through, somehow I recraft myself into a person that could never be a part of the problems that are going on today. Why is it so difficult as people who say we are sinners? Why is it so difficult for us to go, hmm, and that might be affecting me in X. I wonder what we're learning in the wilderness today about ourselves. Are we learning about reconciliation? Are we learning about listening? Are we learning to offer grace when someone makes a mistake? Are we learning to sit and listen to other people's experience. I think this is part of what the testing that is going on today. Are we reflecting the character of Jesus or are we just 
reflecting the same cultural attitudes that are on the other side, no matter what side you're on, of these issues that we're in. See, this is one of the beautiful things about the gospel is that we're not left to cultural whims. We have a standard. We have one that we follow that, that is God in the flesh. And so we can see what, you know, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus believe? What did Jesus care about most? And, and I bring my opinions and my my. Uh, my pre-judgment and convictions, I bring them to bear under the discipleship of Jesus. What am I learning? See, we're not good at self-evaluation. The last thing I want to, reason that we should be willing to engage in the, in the test of the wilderness is because the test prepares us for the next assignment. We've talked about that a little. You know, we're not completely ready, but we're ready. See, God has a plan for us. God has a plan for you. He has a plan for your spouse. He has a plan for your, your church. And he uses the wilderness test to shape us to prepare for that thing that he wants to do in us and through us. The psalmist writes in Psalm 66, 10, for you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You see, the test isn't just a test. It's a process. It isn't just like you pass, fail, you're either in with me or not. That's not what it's about. The test is God is refining us. And let's just admit it, being refined is painful, hot work. The struggle is real. And there are, there are purposes, though, in refining. You know, when, when, when metal is refined, the heat is turned up, and ladle by ladle in this day, impurities are scooped off. When God is refining us, he's taking the things out of our lives that don't belong there. Do you feel that? It's painful. But he starts to remove those things as the heat turns up and the situation gets more intense. He's removing things like an inability to listen, anger, reaction, caring more about a political persuasion than what Jesus says. Being able to discern where is God truly in this moment? And what, is he, what does he want to do in me? What is he changing in me? But he's also not just, he's not just scooping things off. He's developing us at the same time and making us something pure. He's, if, like in this, it's silver, it could be gold, but it's like the, the end product is that you become what he intended you to become, which of course is like Jesus. And I don't know, I've read commentaries on this, I'm not an expert, but in this day and time without you know, all the technology that we have, they, the refiners would determine the purity of the product that they were refining by their ability to see the reflection in it. As those impurities were removed, they would more and more be able to see their face reflected in silver or in gold. Who's, 
whose image are we reflecting as we're refined? It should be Jesus. So then when we say, I have nothing to learn from this situation, I have no reason to sit down with this person or that person and understand their experience, or I have not, you know, it's like, I just know all the answers to this or that. It's like we're really neglecting the opportunity for God to refine us, to take away those things that should not be a part of us and to elevate and purify the things that reflect his son. And I think that God uses the wilderness to do that. And Jesus often puts us in these uncomfortable situations where we have to, we have to experience them. In the conversations. And I think in that moment we have to ask ourselves, are we available for that conversation? Are we available for that process and development, even though it can be painful and difficult. You know, this is a church, let me be explicitly clear about this, that this is what we do. At Sunridge, we engage in those conversations. We don't just like throw our hands up and walk away and we don't slap a label on somebody because to, to, to like disregard what they're saying. That is not who we are, that is never who we have been, and we don't wanna be that in the future. Let me just be super clear about that. We engage in those conversations and we do the hard work of allowing God to refine us and also for us to be a part of the refining process in other people's lives. God calls us into this. And so we can't just walk away You know, so this, is, this is not part of the sermon, but it is a shepherding moment for me in the church in the midst of all of this chaos that seems so out of control. And I ask myself, you know, what is my role as a shepherd here, as a pastor? What is, and I often feel like I'm standing in the middle and I'm holding people's hands and I'm trying to pull them together. I'm trying to pull people to the middle not, not the middle position, but the middle where Jesus stands. And to say, we have to come together and we have to talk about this racism in this country. We have to talk about who we can believe and who we can't believe. We have to talk about theological issues and we have to talk about women's roles in churches. We have to talk about our moral stance and whether it's supported in scripture or not. I feel like as a pastor, this is what I'm trying to do. And you know what I've found? I, there are people that say, nope, I don't wanna stand in that middle. I'm not gonna have that conversation. And they have various reasons for doing it. But I feel like my role is to pull people together and say, you have to have this conversation. This is a moment of testing and people get angry, and people leave, and, they, and so they rip their hands out of my hand. I don't wanna be that church. And I'm gonna assume if you're sitting here, you don't wanna be that kind of a Christian. As difficult as it may be for us to enter into these talks, 
And as exhausting as it can be, by the way, you can take a break. I, my middle daughter used to work for a little while and say, uh, you know, we were doing yard work. I need a break off. That's what she called it. I need a break off. Okay, go take a break off. Everybody gets a break off. Not get broken off, but like get a break off. You, know, you, you would totally get a rest. But like eventually we have to come back to the table and we have to like talk about these things. As, as we've gone through each one of these phases, I've, I've been in these conversations with people about multiple things. Theology and politics and conspiracy and COVID and implicit bias. And it's like, I've, we've been having these talks. And um, some of them are super discouraging. I have to tell you. Like, and I know you're feeling the same thing, that exhaustion makes me think, you know, is it really worth it? Honestly. Like, I'm tired of beating my head against the wall sometimes. But it's a calling God has given us. And, and I have to tell you also, I have like these wonderful conversations. You know, a few weeks ago, I talked about the racial conflict in this country. And I prefaced it by saying, you know, if you're a white male, you're gonna have problems with what I'm about to say. And I fired some people off with that. And really, I wish I'd never said it. It was true, but it, it didn't help the conversation. It's one of those things, do you ever have like a argument with your spouse and you think, oh, I'm gonna really help it with this. And it, that was what it was. It's like, it didn't have the intended purpose. You know, it didn't come out like, wanted it to and so it sparked some great conversation and some people just blew me up over it and then other people said you know I I got to talk to you about this and I had some amazing conversations with people that that where we started was we were like you said this and I got nothing to do with you anymore and I'm like that's not what I meant would you have a conversation and I've had a handful of people say, yeah, I'll enter into that conversation. And you know, in each one of those that we sat down and we talked, do you know that God salvaged that and there was a greater understanding? I learned a lot about myself. I, I learned things like, you know, sometimes there's this bad policing and it's not racism. And, and you know what? I know because I have police officers, they're my friends. Not all cops are bad cops. And if you're out there saying that, you're wrong. Do things need to change? Yes, they do need to change. There's a lot that needs to change. We all have a lot to learn, but you know, we can't be judging each other back and forth and doing the same thing to each other. Well, because you're this, because you wear that uniform or because you carry this sign, it's like you're a bad person. Well, maybe they're not. We need to talk, that's all I'm saying. And I'm so thankful for some of those conversations that I got to have because it was me holding on and saying, and I'm one of them, it's like, can we just talk? I just need a nugget like that every once in a while to keep going. And I bet you're in the same boat. I'm gonna ask the band to come up and I, I wanna just acknowledge that it's, um, by the way, thanks for staying awake with your masks on. Everyone still doing okay out there? You know, um, I know that it's exhausting, and I know it's really hard now, um, but it's worth it. 
Because what happens in the wilderness doesn't stay in the wilderness. I've been saying that because these are the times that God teaches us things that propel us into life in a, in a new way, a new understanding, and a deeper understanding of what God's doing in us and through us. You might have heard this phrase before, the iceberg of leadership, where like, you know, an iceberg, only 10% of the iceberg shows, but it's a 90% below the water that makes it indestructible, right? And you know, we look at people and we, we just see the 10% above, whether they're leaders or, you know, just friends. We, we see the top 10%, but it's the 90% of what God has done in us in the wilderness that, that makes us who he wants us to be, how he's shaping us and preparing us for what he has for us in the future. It's what's beneath the surface that really counts. No matter what people are saying about the 10%, it's what God is doing in the 90% that really, really counts. And so I think that you can tell when you look at Israel and you look at us, you can tell who's been spending time in the wilderness learning. And you can tell the people who spent time in the wilderness and they're not learning. They're fighting. And they're just trying to get out of it. And just want to move on to the next thing or just complain and grumble. Does, does this sound like the Israelite story? And you want to know what? When we start talking about promise, the promised land next week, we're going to see who was learning in the wilderness and who wasn't. Because it shows in the future, because what happens in the wilderness doesn't stay there. So, like, I want to leave you with that. It's like whatever God is doing in your life right now, the refining, the testing, the, you know, the stress, the anxiety, the hard conversations that you have to take a break from every once in a while, it's like all of that is making a difference in you. There's a 90% that God is gonna use in the future. There's a, you're gonna come to a situation, it may not be the promised land, but you're gonna come to a situation in which those things that you learned right now in this crucible are gonna be the thing that's the difference maker in you. And it will be that Christ has been formed in you. Amen?